Hello, and welcome to Dr. Music Season 3, Episode 14. I'm Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me. Some of the brightest lights in the history of the arts go out way too quickly, and one example is the German composer Felix Mendelssohn, who lived from 1809 to 1847, unfortunately died at the young age of 38. Even for his time, that was considered young. If I had to name two huge child prodigies in music history, Felix Mendelssohn would definitely be one of them. The other one would, of course, be Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Mendelssohn wrote some of his best music before the age of 18. In other words, he was basically still in high school. And he wrote incredible music when he was what we called middle school, age 12, 13, and 14. Besides the piano, he sang. He was a great alto. He also played viola and violin and the organ. And he was also a polyglot. Besides German, he could read and write fluently Latin, Greek, English, French. Besides that, he was an accomplished poet and also a really good painter. He liked to paint Swiss landscapes. And from a young age, he caught the attention of many of the artistic elites, like the German playwright and novelist Johann von Goethe, Sir Walter Scott, and Hans Christian Andersen. It doesn't often happen that an adolescent child hones his craft to such a degree that it's basically what we would consider mature. When you listen to the compositions that he wrote as a 12-year-old or a teenager, they do not sound like compositions written by an adolescent. It sounds like a seasoned composer, somebody in their 50s or 60s. No matter how you feel about Mendelssohn, you know, whether you like his music or not, you have to be impressed with his incredible talent. And indeed, he's regarded as a genius, a musical genius. Obviously, like other composers, we can spend a lot of time talking about Mendelssohn's music. So I just wanted to highlight a few of his pieces some that you might know, others you probably don't know, just to give you a taste of what a musical genius can do before the age of 20 in many cases. Speaking of the age of 20, when Mendelssohn was 20, he toured Italy, and the result, well, one of the results, was Symphony No. 4, the Italian Symphony. And later, Mendelssohn revised this symphony, although the original is the one that's most often performed. The very talented conductor, John Elliott Gardner, made a recording of the revision in 1999, and both versions are terrific, but I kind of prefer the revised version. The first movement in particular is very famous. You might recognize it. Here's John Elliott Gardner conducting the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. bad for a 24-year-old. But I wanted to focus on the third movement, which is a minuet. And a minuet is a stylized dance. And remember, I said in a previous episode that when a composer writes a stylized dance, they're not really meant to be danced to. They can be danced to, but they're really a serious piece of music in the style of a dance. 
Now, Mendelssohn was writing at the beginning of the Romantic period. Remember, Ludwig van Beethoven kind of single-handedly began the Romantic period, especially with his Symphony No. 3. And one of the things that Romantic composers increasingly like to do is to delay the cadence. Now, a cadence is an articulation. You could think of it as the period at the end of a sentence, or sometimes a semicolon. That's called a half cadence. A half cadence is on the dominant, and as you probably know by now if you've been listening to my episodes, the dominant is associated with tension. It's on the fifth degree of the scale. An authentic cadence is a cadence on the tonic, scale degree one, the key that you're in. So what romantic composers want to do is they want to delay that sense of resolution. They want to increase the tension. They want to increase the time that you feel that tension so the music tends to migrate, it tends to modulate to different keys, and you're kind of waiting and waiting. But the thing is, you don't expect this kind of thing from a typical dance, a stylized dance. When you think of your typical dance of that period, you're not thinking of delaying the cadence. You're just thinking of something light and airy and happy, something to dance to. But what happens in this particular movement of Mendelssohn's Symphony No. 4 is you don't get a firm cadence in the tonic, in the home key, until around two minutes into the movement. I mean, he touches upon the tonic here and there, but not a very strong statement. He's constantly avoiding the tonic. At one point, he goes to the minor mode, but you never just get a a clear sense of the home key until around two minutes. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you the first two minutes, and I'm going to stop it when he finally has a strong cadence in the home key. Definitely not typical of a stylized dance. Now, as you listen to this performance by John Elliott Gardner, listen for how Mendelssohn extends the sense of tension. And remember, you don't get a period at the end of the sentence, so to speak, until the very end of the excerpt.
There you go. At the very end, we had our first authentic cadence in the home key. And you had to wait two minutes for it. And otherwise, it's a standard minuet in three, four time. One, two, three. One, two, three. Now, probably Mendelssohn's most famous work is his incidental music to the play Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. If you've ever read Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm sure you loved it. It's not challenging like some of his other plays like Hamlet and King Lear. It has a lot of comic episodes like when the mischievous fairy Puck turns the character Nick into a donkey. His head becomes a donkey's head and now he's known as Bottom. And then Puck causes Titania, the queen of fairies, to fall in love with Bottom. So she falls in love with the donkey. But since this is a comedy, unlike Hamlet and King Lear, it has a very happy ending, ending with three marriages. And what good is a triple wedding unless you have wedding music? I'm sure all of you out there recognize this. Mendelssohn wrote that when he was around 17, 18 years old. Absolutely incredible. So traditionally, when people play that piece upon exiting the church after a wedding ceremony, they're listening to the music of a 17 and 18-year-old kid. Now, we hear evidence of Mendelssohn's genius in the very opening of that piece. This is something that the everyday common composer would never think of, but he did. Now, let me just play the opening phrase on the piano. Now, another common or ordinary composer might have written it like this. Did you hear the difference? Mendelssohn wrote the opening like this. And my hypothetical common composer wrote it like this. After the opening trumpet fanfare, what Mendelssohn is doing is invoking what's called a tonicization. A tonicization is a very quick change of key. It doesn't last very long, but it implies a different key. It's not like you're actually changing the key and staying in that new key. It's just a hint at a new key. So when you hear that very first chord, instead of the home key of C major, he's implying a tonicization, a change of key into E minor. But then he goes right back to C major. Now, another composer writing in the key of E minor might have easily continued it in E minor. For instance, they might have written something like this. That's not nearly as good and nearly as festive, but it remains in the implied key. It remains in the key of E minor. So what he does is he does a little trick there. In the very beginning of that phrase, 
it feels like he might be going to the key of E minor, but then he goes right back to C major. Most composers would not have the genius, especially at the age of 17, to think of something like that. By the way, I find it ironic that Wagner's wedding march is always played in the same wedding ceremony as Mendelssohn's. You know Wagner's march, right? It's ironic because Mendelssohn was Jewish, Wagner was an anti-Semite, and Mendelssohn's music actually fell out of favor from the mid-19th century all the way into the early 20th century because of anti-Semitism plaguing Europe. Sadly, even though Mendelssohn was Jewish, he and his siblings were baptized as Protestants. And this pressure of being Jewish in Germany went all the way back to the 18th century. Mendelssohn's grandfather, named Moses, had four children, and two of them converted to Catholicism, just so they weren't marginalized and were able to gain access to certain professions. Now, the next piece I want to play for you was written when he was only around 12 or 13 years old. At that age, he wrote a set of string symphonies, short pieces, in three movements each. We're going to look at the first movement of Mendelssohn's String Symphony Number no. 3 in E minor. And when you listen to it, believe me, this does not sound like the work of a 13-year-old. No way. I'm going to play the first three notes of his main melodic motif. Or you could also say motive, M-O-T-I-V-E. And... Think about if you would be able to write an entire piece based on these three notes. Here it goes. That's it. I'm not kidding. Three repeated notes. That's it. Now, after those repeated notes, he does have little melodic cells like this. Or this. But again, those three repeated notes are really the main melodic idea. Can he get any simpler than that? Is it possible to write a four-minute piece based on three repeated notes? Well, for most people, no. But for Felix Mendelssohn, yes. Because those repeated notes are the launching pad for other little melodic cells. But your attention is constantly being drawn to those three notes. This is counterpoint at its best. And for those of you who don't know what counterpoint is, it is two or more simultaneous, rhythmically independent melodies it is very difficult to write good counterpoint. The master of counterpoint, well, one of the masters, is Johann Sebastian Bach. But Mendelssohn was darn good at it, and so was Mozart and Beethoven. The trick with this style of music is to develop these small melodic cells, motifs. And to express these little melodic ideas in different ways, different voices. When I say different voices, it doesn't have to mean human voices. It can just mean instruments. So different melodic lines, and when you have contrapuntal music, you could have many, many melodic lines going on at the same time. You could have two, but you could have 20 if you want. So the magic of music like this is to take the very simple, a very simple melodic idea, three repeated notes, and to weave a kind of musical tapestry with this counterpoint, having your attention diverted all the time with different voices. But you don't mind your attention constantly being diverted to different voices or different instruments because that's the joy of the music. That's the magic of the music. That the composer can make all of that complicated counterpoint sound intelligible and fun. It's really a lot of fun to listen to music like that. And the fact that it was just a kid that wrote this is just, to me, completely amazing. So as you're listening to the first couple of minutes of this first movement of String Symphony Number no. 3, 
keep those things in mind. Keep in mind that I was just a kid that wrote this and that the entire piece is really based on three repeated notes. That's it. And this is Nicholas Ward conducting the Northern Chamber Orchestra. school kids who can write music like that? Hmm. Now, before we go, I'd like to play part of a piano piece that Mendelssohn wrote, a very famous piano piece. I'm not going to name it because I want you to listen and see if it rings a bell. Maybe you've heard somebody play it before, or maybe you heard it on TV. It's probably his most famous piano composition, part of a larger series of pieces that he wrote.
don't know if your ears are sharp enough to hear this, but right at the end of that excerpt, he has a cadence, not in the home key, but in the dominant. In other words, the key of tension. And having a cadence on the dominant is one of the most common classical procedures. Everybody does it. Even composers in the 20th century do it. And you could find examples all the way back into the 17th century of cadencing on the dominant. And why do composers do that? Well, exactly because it sets up tension. If you're going to have a cadence on a chord associated with tension, you want to set up some musical tension that has to be resolved. So naturally, that's a chord that you're going to want a cadence on. Now, did you recognize that melody? It's a really famous melody. Well, it's part of his series of piano compositions called Songs Without Words, and you can imagine lyrics being set to this piece, but there are no lyrics. And this is Opus 62, number 6, called The Spring Song, otherwise known as Camberwell Green, because that's the place in London where he composed it. Now, unlike the string symphony that I just played for you before, it's not based on a repeated note three times. It's based on a melodic solo, and that's what Mendelssohn loves to do. He likes to take these little melodic rhythmic cells and develop them. And in this case, he's working with this eight-note melodic motif. And I love listening to music, reading the score. I'm a musician, so I could read the score. And I do that because I want to see how the composer was generating the music, what was going through his or her mind. How exactly did he come up with this beautiful song using really only about eight notes? And I find that really, really interesting to study the mindset of a genius like Mendelssohn, and that's why I studied music theory, and that's why I do this podcast. And I hope you've been enjoying it. Until next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better. <laughs>